I was looking at the statue of David online one time and was reading the person's comments. It's almost like a literary criticism almost, and it talked about and sometimes more grand words than these things deserve, but that the statue of David reminds man, and speaking of man and woman, what all we could be, but that we're not. I was like, okay. In one aspect of it, yeah, we can be just like David. When you read through the story of David and you see his, his weaknesses and his failures, and I'm thinking, I am just like David. But even in the things that amaze us about David, you know, the man after God's own heart, nothing of that is something that is separate or an obstacle that we can't overcome in this life. Everything that he was that was grand or great was because he trusted and he obeyed God. He would go to God and he would pray and he would do things with strength and courage, but it was strength and courage that God gave him. We can do that. So when I read through the story of David, yes, I'm amazed, but it spurs me on. It compels me to maturity, to becoming more like David. And then ultimately we'll see David is not the final solution, right? He is weak. He makes mistakes. He has failures just like us. And it points us to the Lord's anointed, the final solution, Jesus, of course, the Christ. So when I think about, you know, the temptations that we're looking through right now, we can bring those into our own life. And that's what we're trying to do at the end of these lessons and see how it's applicable. But in today's lesson, we'll be reminded that David is not that final solution. And we'll probably see some things about him that make us relate a lot maybe more so than we have in the previous aspects of this story. So as we think about last time, remember David was drawn into the wilderness and that he was tempted. He could have taken the throne into his own hands by killing Saul, but he did not. Instead, he paid homage. He came with humility. And instead of seeing the opportunity as you know, divine providence and killing, instead he equated and understood that this is the Lord's anointed. I have no right to kill Saul, and he did not. He, he resisted the temptation. And so we looked at that and we saw, hey, opportunities don't necessarily mean divine providence. And then we talked about you can't take those shortcuts. Satan loves to give us what we want. And sins are shortcuts. They circumvent the joy and the, the rest that ultimately God wants to give us in his time and, of course, through his purpose. But we have to be able to resist those temptations and trust and obey God. Now, come with me. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And again, we'll see David being you know, drawn out or taken back into the wilderness. And again, we'll see temptation. Now, as we begin the account, verse 1, and we only get one verse, Samuel dies. You would think he deserves more, but really it's all about the passing of the torch. Yes, he's the one that God used to bring about the anointed, but now it's going to be all about the anointed one, David. And you'll notice also with this, David then returns to the wilderness where we expect another temptation. And at this time, it's the wilderness of Paran, which is the same wilderness that Israel wandered through and struggled about during their time. And so the temptation is coming. Now, in verses 2 through 3, we see that we're introduced to two people. One of those is Nabal. And if we look at the Hebrew here, we see that his name means fool. And then as the description comes, we see that he lives out that in a very accurate way. It says in there that he's harsh 
and badly behaved, according to the ESV. Now, his wife is described as just the opposite. Her name means my father's delighted, and she seems to be very discerning and beautiful. But Nabal, nonetheless, is a very wealthy man. He says he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he's shearing his sheep, which lets us know during this time that this was a time of festivity and celebration and that people would be celebrating abundance and the provision that they had. So when David hears about this and he hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep, he would, of course, understand all those things, and he sends 10 young men to him in the area of Carmel. And the men help protect all that Nabal has. So you could think about the good that David is doing to this wealthy man, Nabal, out here in this area. So when you have this much wealth, it would be, of course, difficult to take care of all the wealth. David is doing a very good thing. He is sending out of his men, remember he had 400 men, sending out 10 of them to help protect Nabal's wealth. But as the feast day comes, David sends some of his men back to Nabal's men and basically saying, considering what we have done for you, show us favor and give to us as you would. But listen to what Nabal's response is to David's men. This is verses 10 and 11. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? And there's that derogatory term again. We, we saw Saul use it. We saw Doeg use it. And basically he's saying David is a nobody. He even references this thing that he hears about people that are running away from their masters. So it's completely ludicrous to think that Nabal doesn't know who David is. Everybody in Israel knows who David is based on what happened with Goliath and the ensuing victories. They know what Saul did and they know what David did and everybody knows the victories of David. So Nabal certainly knows him and he is mocking him saying that Saul is the king and here's just some runaway with remember these indebted people that are now following him, these bunch of nobodies out here in the wilderness. Who am I, this great wealthy man, that I should give of my things to these nobodies? So Nabal is certainly keeping with his name. Folly is definitely with him. And so when David's men come back and tell him of what has happened, David is furious. So even in this sense, David has a chance, though, in order to think about the evil that is done with him, and as we saw previously in chapter 24, not return the evil, right? We see David overcoming evil with good previously. But David is angered by this. Previously, he had talked about sending peace three times. But upon the messengers bringing back what Nabal has said, David now speaks of the sword three times. David is going to send a group of his men and has the intention of destroying Nabal's household. So what's scary about this is that David sounds just like Saul at this point. He is thinking just like Saul. Think about when Saul sent Doag to Ahimelech, which always, Ahimelech always is difficult to say, sends it to, to them and kills all of the priests. And it seems like David is about to walk down the same exact path. Now, fortunately, for not, not just Nabal, but for David, Nabal's wife finds out about finds out about what has happened. One of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail, his wife, and tells her. 
He didn't even bother going to Nabal. He said in verse 17, he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Let's pause just right there for a moment. And, and we'll, of course, make a very important connection later to this. But when we read a story like this, this does warrant some self-reflection. Am I this type of man that I won't listen to anyone? That I won't consider that I could possibly be wrong? Or that I won't allow someone to speak to me in a way so that I could possibly gain understanding, gain knowledge or wisdom? Well, Nabal was that man. Couldn't even talk to him, right? He's that much of a fool. And when we behave in this way, of course, folly will be with us. And so Nabal is keeping with his name. But Abigail, she is the turning point in this story. And so, of course, we could look at it and say, look, God is providentially using Abigail. But that does not take away the fact that Abigail is a righteous person. God did not take her outside of her own will. She did these things because of the person that she is. And so we should see that and glory at Abigail's actions. And she goes to David to make intercession. And we will read every single one of Abigail's words because they are beautiful. They are rich with the word of God. And when I consider, I mean, think about through the story of David up to this point. We have not stopped at any point to read any of David's speeches word for word. But we are going to stop and read the words of Abigail. They are that profound. She is that rich in God's word. And David ultimately is going to be blessed by her words and all of Israel. And if we want to carry it stronger, even beyond. Listen to what Abigail has to say. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So when she had heard about this, she gathered as much food and stuff as I think that she could. She put it on some donkeys and she went to David. She understood the evil that her husband had done and she sought to right his wrong, even willing to take the guilt of her husband upon herself. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord our God, and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Wow. What staggering and amazing words that come from Abigail. So as we look in verses 32 and 34 now, 
we see David's response. He sees the blessings that come from Abigail's mouth. He relents from the blood guilt that he was about to do, taking vengeance into his own hands, seeking to kill Nabal and all of his household, which was of the mind of Saul, which would of course been wrong to take and act upon himself and his own glory in this stance. And he decides that he will relent. And as he rigidly intended, peace and good is what he will do. The unfortunate part as we come to the end of the account is that with all of this joy, David relenting, Abigail's words, and the right being done, we see an ominous ending. David ends up marrying Abigail. Nabal, as Abigail comes to him the next day, because when she initially comes to Nabal to tell him what has transpired, he's drunk and he's partying, so she decides to wait till the next morning. And when she does reveal to him what's transpired, his heart pretty much just turns to stone. It dies within him. And about 10 days later, the Lord strikes him down and he dies. When David hears of this, he comes back and through one of his servants, Abigail is, is given the invitation and becomes his wife. We also see that David marries Ahinoam and they become, or she becomes one of his wives. And we're also reminded that he already is married to Saul's daughter, Michal. And we remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. God has commanded that the kings of Israel would not take multiple wives to themselves. And so we're seeing here a shadow that David, of course, is not the final solution. And this is where we're reminded in his weaknesses and in his failures that we do have in common some of these aspects of David. But getting beyond the story now, we come to the pictures of the anointed. And the first one is that, yes, again, coming out to the wilderness and being tempted to sin. He was tempted, and he was tempted to bring upon his own name and his own glory and to take action for himself, rather than in chapter 24, when temptation came, he trusted God and allowed God to judge between him and Saul and for God to take his vengeance. David was tempted to take it upon himself and act in his own glory. Now, when we think forward to Matthew chapter 4, we see one of the other temptations that Satan puts upon Jesus. He could have done the same exact thing. Satan told Jesus that he would take him up to the pinnacle of the temple, which would be about 150 feet in the air, and that Satan would you know, allow or that Jesus could just step off the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, and fall, that the angels, if he truly was the Son of God, would lift him up. And in that case, everybody would have seen and saw that Jesus truly was the Son of God. So Jesus had an opportunity. He was tempted to act in his own glory, to show what he could do and that the angels would lift him up. But as we know, Jesus did not go into that temptation. He did not give in. He rejected Satan's temptation. And David did as well. But David had to have a little bit of help from Abigail. Now, secondly, we see here is we come back to the speech and we see these pictures of the Lord's anointed that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And this is why this is so amazing what Abigail says. Because listen to all of these things that are fulfilled, not necessarily entirely in David, but yes, entirely in Jesus, the final solution. Verse 28, if you put your eyes upon these things, the anointed will forgive sins. Yes, Jesus. The Lord will make a lasting dynasty for his anointed. Yes, Jesus. The anointed will fight the Lord's battles. Yes, Jesus. No evil or wrongdoing will be found in the anointed. Yes, Jesus. 
Coming into verse 29, the Lord will protect the anointed from his enemies and hurl his enemies away. Yes, Jesus. Verse 30, the Lord will fulfill every good word spoken about the anointed and appoint him ruler over Israel. Yes, Jesus. Verse 31, the anointed will not personally avenge himself for the evil done against him. Yes, Jesus. And then in verse 39, the Lord will vindicate the anointed later by the judging of his enemies. Yes, Jesus. So now we come to the message for us. As we consider this story, where does it become applicable to us? Where do we see lessons that can be tied to us and help us walk in a way that's worthy and pleasing to our Lord? And that's where we see first the sin of thinking about ourselves. When we consider Nabal at the beginning, he's only thinking about himself. Notice in his language, he talks about his bread, his water, his meat. He killed it for his shears. He only sees these things as a product of what he has done. He is such a great man that these things are there and he has these blessings because of himself. Never once does he attribute to anything that he sees or has as coming from God. It's all because of him. And if we look at verse 21, we see that David is doing the same exact thing as he's about to walk into folly. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about the wrong that has just been done to him, the evil, and how he does not deserve this. So that means in his mind, he has an idea of what he does deserve. Now, if we step back, this, of course, sounds like us at times. We have these different things. We think about what we've done, and we do have a tendency to think maybe a little highly of ourselves and the work that we've done. We have a tendency to maybe even see ourselves as working harder or doing more than others. There's that tendency there. It's in our nature. It's in our weakness. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we see that here. But we've got to stop. Ultimately, Abigail's words struck the heart of David. And he was able to move away from this selfishness and come back to doing good. And that's what we're reminded in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, that we are not to be overcome by evil, but instead we are to overcome evil with good. And that's what we've seen with David, and David almost failed. But thankfully, through the providence of Abigail, he returned good. He went back to doing good. So we have to stop thinking about ourselves. We've got to stop thinking about what we think that we deserve. But instead, like we saw in chapter 24, that humility that David possessed and expressed when he came out to Saul, and instead of thinking about the evil that Saul had done for him, he paid him homage. And even in the opportunity, instead of trying to do what he wanted from the flesh, seeking out the spiritual discernment of God, putting on the eyes of God, and with humility, trusting and obeying God. That's what we have to be able to do. But when we think about ourselves, it's impossible to do those things. We are blinded. Our heart is dull, and we will fail. So in second, we see in Abigail a contrast of one that would think about themselves. 
as we consider her actions. She's married to Nabal. That has got to be challenging. But yet, even in the circumstances where Nabal's foolishness and his folly is about to bring about the destruction of their household, she is willing to go out and in humility take blame for these things and right the wrong. I'm sure there's some aspect of the flesh where she would have loved to have seen her husband killed. Yeah, how difficult it would be to live with a man like that. But she didn't. She sought good for her husband. And even though David didn't deserve it, she sought good for David. She was not seeking her own. She sought the good of those around her. That's the example in this story that we should look to and try to be like, yes, thankfully, David relented and went back to doing good. But Abigail is the figure here that we should look to as the example of who we should strive to be. She's the one being like Jesus the Christ in this. She's the one that's doing what's right, not because it benefits herself, because it's right. And that's what we have to be able to do. We have to be able to do what is right because it's the right thing to do. Not because there's any benefit or gain to it. Just the pure motive of doing what is right because we trust and we love God. And we know ultimately doing what is right will bring about the greatest joy. That's where Satan tempts us. He wants to give us everything that we can have and give us this happiness so that he can rule over us. We'll be a slave to his sin. But if we'll just trust and obey God, then God can give us the greater joy. He can give us the eternal glory that we desire in our flesh, but just in the wrong way. God can give it to us, but we have to trust and obey so that he can give it to us in our time. And we see that in Abigail. Now this strikes me with Paul's words too. The lesson that we learned through Abigail Paul spoke it to the Philippians. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, consider how these words parallel with what we see here in Abigail. He told him, this is chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Further, Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. You had Christians that were taking each other to court. And what were Paul's instructions? This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. Paul said it would be better that you be wronged or defrauded rather than to take your brother or sister to court. They were responding to people that were doing wrong to them by doing wrong. That's human. That's our nature. Someone puts evil upon us and we want to return it with evil. But we are the ones that must stop that cycle. Right? Romans 12 verse 21. We are not to be overcome by evil. Instead, we are to overcome evil with good. We have to be the cycle stoppers. When people do evil, not just to us, we have to be willing to just ah, grin and bear sometimes to be defrauded, to be wronged, but to be strong in the Lord and be able to do good. I mean, step back and think about relationships for a moment, whether it's friendships, relationships, even the marriage relationship. 
be willing to bet many of those are destroyed because of the vicious cycle of doing evil or hurting the other person. One person on one side hurts the other. The other returns it with hurt and the vicious cycle continues until the relationship is destroyed. That cannot be us. We must be cycle stoppers. We overcome evil with good. Is it easy? Of course not. But that's why we have to go to the Lord and pray for strength and courage and discernment and seek his will above all else. So yes, we can be like Abigail. So in this case, not necessarily like David, even though he did relent and he did do what was right ultimately. So yes, David as well. We can look at the statue of David and be reminded of stories such as this, and we can be like the favorable traits of David, but only if we're willing to do what David did, trust and obey God, relent from doing evil, even when we are wronged or hurt. We can do that, and we must do that. And so the last question, why should we do that? And this is where the story really hurts. Well, I look into the story and I ask myself, who am I? And at one point, I'd have to say, I am the ball. And I think if we're all honest, we'd all have to say that. Because at some point, we were all selfish. Our lives were about ourselves. It was about gaining what we wanted out of this, this life. It was about the things that we had and we attributed to ourselves, our hard work, our gifts and talents. It was all about me. I'm the fool. I hope I've gotten beyond that, but I know it's still there. There's elements, there's parts, there's degrees of that still there. We have to move beyond the ball. And we have to see at some point, and maybe some of you haven't yet, that we have looked at Jesus the Christ and said, I don't need you. He has tried to do good to us and we have done evil to Jesus. We did not deserve anything that Jesus did for us. And Jesus came and he gave us what we did not deserve, thankfully. Think about that. Jesus came and in the state that we were like Nabal, a fool, he went to the cross. Satan tempted him. He said, here's your shortcut. You don't have to suffer this. I'll give you the kingdoms. He withdrew. Not going to make me a king. I know the path. Peter tempted Jesus. Don't do this. It's not for you to suffer. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew what he had to do. And he loved me and you so much that he was willing to walk it, suffer it, go to the cross and bear our sins for us. Jesus loved us that much. That's how we are able to overcome evil. We keep our eyes upon our Savior, the final solution, the anointed, Jesus the Christ. And what he did is what compels us and gives us the strength and courage to do the same thing. So when we look at the statue of David, yeah, we see the whole picture. Can we be like that? Yeah, we can be weak in the flesh. We can make mistakes. But can we also be strong in the Lord? Absolutely. Because we can look to Jesus the Christ and remember what he's done for us. And it doesn't matter the evil that comes upon us. In that, we can garner the strength to do what is right. Because it is right. And God will be pleased with it.
Thank you for your attention. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.